this series in Colossians called Rooted. And I have uh, loved this series. So here's what we've discussed. Listen, everyone turn your attention this way. Turn your phones off. Just tune in. This is the last talk in Colossians. And we'll do some give and take. We'll do some discussions throughout like we always do. But um, uh, the book of Colossians, we've discussed the last few weeks several ideas. The big topic, of course, has been what it means to be rooted. We've talked about what it means to be rooted in Christ, rooted in suffering, rooted in the cross, rooted in holiness, in community. Tim mentioned uh, work and family last week. And today is just uh, called Rooted Until the End. And so Paul has some final words that he's writing here uh, to the Colossians. And before I get into the book of Colossians, though, I want to set this up for you by discussing the book I talked about in the main service last Sunday. And this is a book called You Lost Me by David Kinneman. And the subtitle is Why Young Christians Are Leaving the Church. And I've poured through this book the last few weeks, just looking at, at most of it. And here's some interesting points that I want you to get from this. He says that teens are some, American teenagers are some of the most religiously active people in the church. But something happens when they get to their 20s, and the 20-something age group is some of the most least, some of the least active people in the church. And so there's this steep drop-off whenever people leave their teenage years, they leave high school. He says that 59% of those raised in the church will at some point leave the church, almost 60%. And so the question is, why does this happen? And in the book, he talks about how many have this vague, shallow, rootless, superficial faith that he calls moralistic, therapeutic deism. And I talked about this last Sunday in the church service. And I know whenever you use big words, you're kind of like, all right, this is Sunday, Dave. This is not school, so don't overwhelm us. But just listen to the definition he gives for this idea of moralistic, therapeutic deism. Here's what he says. God is something like a combination, divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. And I think that definition does shed light on something that I see, and I know that you see in our culture throughout, especially here in the Bible Belt. We see this kind of thing, and it's rampant in the church, right? This idea that people just kind of, they, they do the Christian thing, they come to church, they go through the motions, they participate in Christian activities, but the question is, are they truly rooted in their faith? Are they truly planted in Christ? And are they really buying into, listen, are they really buying into the specific, real, actual truths of the gospel? That's the question. Or are they just buying into some like sort of just vague, superficial spirituality out there that um, they feel good when they come to church, they get the warm fuzzy from God when they come to church through worship services, and so that's their spirituality wrapped up right there. That's the question. Are you truly rooted? Are you rooting yourself in the actual hardcore truths of the gospel? Or is it something just kind of like up in the cloud somewhere that that you just sort of feel good when you come to church and that's that's all it's about to you? And so when I look at this book and it says that 60% of the people drop out of church, the question becomes what are some ways they're actually doing this? Because we all know that every single person doesn't drop out of church in the same way, do they? There's a story behind every person And so I want to give you three ways in which he says people abandon the church. And the first way is this. There's what he calls nomads. These are people who 
they walk away from the church engagement. But if you said to them, are you still a Christian? They would say yes. And they would say, yes, I believe these things about Christ. I believe he's the son of God. I believe in the resurrection. And I consider myself a Christian, but I'm just sort of wandering right now. And they're not really plugged into a church body anywhere. So he calls these people nomads. Now you might be surprised the, the person that he says is kind of like a nomad in our culture today, and he refers to Katy Perry, who you know her music. And uh, she is someone who still considers herself spiritual. If someone said, are you a Christian? She might say, well, yeah, I think so, but I'm not sure I buy into the Christianity that, that's put out there by most Christians. And so this is what Katy Perry said in a quote in this book. She says, I still believe Jesus is the Son of God, but I also believe in extraterrestrials and that there are people who are sent from God to be messengers and all kinds of crazy stuff. I look up into the sky, all those stars and planets, the never-endingness of the universe. Every time I look up, I know that I am nothing, and there's something way beyond me. I don't think it's as simple as heaven and hell. And so you have someone who would say, yeah, I believe, God's, I, I believe Christ is the Son of God, but I'm not sure I can buy into all the other stuff. And so for her, that seems like that's good enough for me to call myself a Christian, but I don't ascribe to what most people would say it means to be a Christian. And so you have someone who says they're a Christian, but doesn't live like it, right? And this kind of thinking is rampant, I think, in the culture that you and I live in. And so the next kind of person that he describes is prodigals. This is someone that he says they lose their faith entirely. Now, just to clarify, I do not believe that you can lose your salvation if you're truly a believer. But this is someone who would have said they were a Christian at one point in their life, maybe done the activities of Christians, but then at some point they said, you know what, I don't believe this anymore, and I'm rejecting my faith. Now, I really believe that a true Christian can't reject their faith in that sense, but this is someone who may have pretended or may have thought they were a Christian, but came to the realization later on that they said, you know what, I am no longer a Christian. I don't believe that anymore. I don't, I don't put my faith in Jesus anymore, and I can't ascribe to what those people say they believe. And so this might happen because they resent the church. It may have happened because something happened at church that was really hurtful to them. For whatever reason, they've abandoned their faith because of some personal reasons, but they've moved on from Christianity. And in many cases, they never return. The third kind of person he talks about is the one that I feel like I have the most compassion for, and it's exiles. And this is the person who is still invested in their Christian faith, but they feel stuck between culture and the church. This is the kind of person who um, just feels a lot of angst in the church, that they feel passionate about Christ, they feel passionate about the Bible, they want the church to be on mission for God, and mission, on mission for Jesus, but they just have this, these hang-ups with the church, and they can't fully wrap their minds around those things, and so they pull away because they just can't deal with just some of the church stuff, right? And this is someone who is, in a sense, a Christian but living in exile from the church. And like I said, this is a person that I, ha I probably have the most compassion for because part of me, that, that's part of me as a Christian sometimes. And there was a student that I, I talked to a long time ago when I was an intern at a church, and I had just moved to Texas. I became an intern at this church, and I heard about this guy named uh, Peyton Toon, and he was this sort of like really popular guy in the youth group, 
Um, all the girls loved him, you know, he's one of those guys, and just a really godly guy, and he was a thinker. He was like one of those guys that, like, he kind of had the looks, he had the sports, and he also had the brains, which is a rare combination, you know, and, uh, and so he was an intellectual guy. He loved to read and, and talk deep, meaningful theology and so on, and as an 18-year-old kid, he and I were on, were on a, a trip to New York City for a mission trip with some other people, and one day he says, um, can we go for a walk and just talk? And so he and I went to Central Park and just kind of walked around, and we had this long conversation. And I knew the backstory of this kid's life, but he didn't know that I knew. Because I knew that about a year and a half before I got there to, to, to Texas, I knew that his brother had committed suicide. And I knew that his brother was found, Peyton found his brother after he had shot himself. And so tragedy sort of engulfed this family, godly family, this kid, the oldest kid in the family took his life, and Peyton was his younger brother, and Peyton found him in that state, and just shook his faith, shook his whole world. And it was, I think, through that tragedy that he began to have a lot of just doubts and concerns about the, about the church. Is the church really doing enough? Is the church really taking things seriously enough? And so he's this real thoughtful guy, but he just felt like his, his faith had this seriousness to it, and he felt like the church did not meet that need. And from what I know of him today, I think he's still a Christian, but I think he sort of pulled away from the church because he just feels like the church is just not meeting the culture in the correct way, in the way that they should. This person's an exile. This is the kind of person who especially feels, I think, lost in the midst of youth groups. Because let's just admit it, this can be a weird place, can't it? It can be a weird place. Lots of drama, lots of chaos. We do some really dumb things like, I guess I, I, I really, we, have, we haven't really done an all-nighter in a long, long time, so I can't say that, but we do some crazy stuff here. And to a person who has that real passionate and, and, and like zeal of their faith, and they're just real intense, and that kind of person is going to look at this and go, you know, this is kind of stupid. This is just kind of weird, and I don't really want to be a part of this. I have better things to do. And this is the person that um, we would describe as being an exile. Someone who just really wants the church to take things more seriously and engage the culture in a more productive way. In fact, um, recently there was a, uh, a girl here in our ministry who said to me, she said, you know, Dave, you always say that we're, we should come here for the word, and we do, but why do we plan all these fun events in the summertime? That's a great question. Really good question. And it got me thinking, I was like, you know, I do need to think about why we do what we do. And I don't want to just have, like, the fun events just because that's just what you do. Because I do want to take the person who is a potential exile person like this, and, and I, I, want to do that. I, want, I want to challenge that person. I want that person to challenge us in what we do here. But I will tell you this, that if this is where your personality, personality leans, if you're that ultra-passionate, ultra-zealous um, intense person who just wants the church to do a better job of reaching the culture, I would encourage you, don't become self-righteous and arrogant about that. Remain in the church and help the church reform and get better at those things, okay? Because we need you in the church. We need you to stay committed to the bride of Christ and stay committed to her so that the church can become better at what she does. 
the church needs people just like you. I consider people like this kind of like those Old Testament prophets that say to the nation of Israel, like, y'all need to repent and turn to Jesus, right? Um, this is kind of how I see the exile type person is that they, they really have this prophetic voice that can breathe life into the church. And I would encourage you, if that's you, stay committed to the church and help breathe new life into the church. That's going to be your mission throughout your, your walk with Christ. So the church can be a weird place. Um, and I, like I said, this is the one I struggle with the most personally because this was partly me. I grew up in the church, but then I started being very critical of the church. I hated the chaos and drama I saw in the church. saw a lot of politics in the church. But I tell you this, nothing has been more rewarding than to stay committed to the church, the bride of Christ, and see it do things in spite of us, right? We've got some weirdness, some idiosyncrasies about the church, but it's really cool to see God work in spite of us, in spite of us. And so I want you to go ahead and discuss questions uh, one through three. Go ahead and discuss your first three questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss. Now let's look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Colossians 4, uh, verse 2. And here's what, here's what Paul says. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now I want to tell you this morning that at some, at some point, you're going to feel the pull towards one of those three ways of abandoning the faith that I mentioned to you. At some point, you're going to feel the pull of one of those things. It's going to happen for you. And so the question I want you to wrestle with this morning is, is how do you stay rooted until the end? Until the end of your life, how do you stay firmly planted in Christ until the very end of your life? All the way to the end. And Colossians 4.2, Paul tells the Colossians to, con to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So the first thing I want you to know this morning is that you've got to be persistent in prayer if you're going to be someone who is rooted until the end of your life in Christ. You have got to be persistent in prayer. You will not have a healthy walk with Christ if you don't consistently pray. It is essential to the life of every Christian. It is not the thing that the varsity Christians do. It is a thing that every Christian should be doing consistently and persistent in prayer. Now, how many of us just compartmentalize our prayer time to a devotional time? I almost feel like the devotional times become counterproductive. It's like because you know that if you don't carve out time in your life, then you're going to not do it, which is true. And I think you need to carve out time in your life. But what it's done, though, is it's compartmentalized all of your prayer into that time frame, right? And you're like, I'm just going to pray during that five, ten minutes of the day, and I'm good because I don't have to do it all the time. Now that I've checked, I've checked it off, and I'm good to go, right? That's how most of us approach that, that whole deal. And here's the deal. I just can't imagine Paul doing that. Can you? Can you imagine Paul, like, being in a jail cell and being like, hey, guys, be quiet. I'm doing my 10-minute Devo over here, right? I mean, I just can't imagine Paul addressing this time with God that way. Can you? Or anyone that... Um, we, see, we see in Scripture that way. Can you imagine David as he's running from Saul 
um, when, he's, when, he's, when Saul's trying to kill him. Can you imagine David being like, all right, guys, I'm going to do my 10-minute devotional, right, my one-minute Bible, and, uh, and me and God are going to have, like, this little experience. I, I mean, I, I think that he would be on his knees a lot considering how desperate he was. And that's really the issue is that when you see how desperate you really are and your dependence upon Jesus, that's what should drive you to your knees. And the reality is most of us don't ever see that. We just think we do when there's a crisis. I think about um, Pastor Gary going through this ordeal with, with cancer in his eye, and there's no question that all of us have been on our knees more fervently than we were before, right, about this one particular issue. And the conviction that I felt, we were praying for him uh, as a staff one day um, a couple weeks ago, and, and I was moved by the fact that why don't we always, why don't I always pray this fervently for the lost? Why don't I pray this fervently for things I'm struggling with, sin issues in my life? Why don't I pray this dependently and fervently and passionately? Why is it only when there's a crisis that we reach that point where we say, okay, God, I, I really need you now. I need you now, right? Why do we have this dichotomy in how we live? And so, um, if you, look, if you look down um, at the next uh, verse here, verse 3, I want you to see, actually, you know, hang on, let's, let's go back to uh, verse 2 for a second. I want you to see this, this other phrase here in verse 2. He says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. What does it mean to be watchful as you pray? Because most of us just pray reactionary prayers. We don't pray proactively, do we? We just pray. Something happens and we pray. Paul is saying, no, you need to look, look down the road a bit at what could potentially happen to you. Be aware of what could happen to you and be prayer, prayerful and watchful about those things. Be watchful as you pray. Because one of the best ways not to fall is to be very aware of the many ways in which you could fall. One of the best ways to not fall is to be very aware and conscious of the ways in which you could potentially fall. If you walk through life and just go, hey, I'm good, like I'm, I'm strong, me and Christ, we're, I'm growing, and I feel strong in my faith, that's when you are set up to fall. And you've got to be watchful and look down the road a bit and say, hey, what are some ways in which I could fall? I want to guard against those things. I want to watch out for those things and be careful because here's the way Satan works. You realize Satan never, like, sends someone to you to, um, like, argue you out of the faith in one conversation. Like, no one ever says, hey, I've been sent by Satan to, like, talk to you about your faith and how wrong it is. And I'm going to tempt you into um, sinfulness right now. Um, it never happens that way. It's always a slippery slope. It sneaks up on you. And you don't see it coming unless you're someone like Paul who is watchful as you pray. And this requires great humility. Look at verse 3. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And I want you, did you just see what Paul just said there? He said, I want to pray that God may open to us a door for the word on account of which I am in prison. Just think about this for a minute. Look at what Paul's praying for. He's praying for more chances to do the very thing that got him thrown into prison. 
He's praying. He's saying, don't pray that I just get out of prison, but pray that I get more chances to share the gospel in prison. Right? And so what blows me away about, about Paul is that if I was in prison, I'd be concerned about one thing, and it's getting out. While Paul's in prison, he's concerned about one thing, and it's getting the gospel out. It's while Paul's in prison, instead of him praying that God unleashes him, get me out of the walls of this prison, it's I'm going to pray that God gets the gospel out of the walls of this prison. That's, that's Paul's prayer while he's in prison. That would not be my prayer if I was in prison. Paul is saying, you can imprison me, but you can't imprison the gospel. He's going to jailbreak the gospel even if he can't jailbreak himself, right? And so instead of praying for an open cell door, he prays for an open door for the gospel, and that's his chief concern. That's his chief concern. I'm just blown away that he didn't even say, hey guys, pray that my circumstances change because it's just really uncomfortable in here. He never says that. He says, pray for me. I'd have more chances to share the very thing and do the very thing that got me thrown in here. That's what I want. I wonder how many of us, when you encounter difficulty and suffering, what kinds of things do we pray for? Do you just pray for different circumstances? Do you just pray that God would change the circumstances? Or do you pray that he would grow you or let you share the gospel more in the middle of those circumstances? Maybe God is, it wants to use those things to actually as a platform for the gospel for your life. Or how often do we let our circumstances determine our obedience, right? Okay, God, well, I was, I was obeying you. Things were going well until I got arrested and thrown into prison for doing the right thing. Do we let our circumstances determine whether or not we actually obey him? How often do we pray for an open gospel door in our lives? How often do you and I pray for a chance to share the gospel with someone that we know doesn't know Christ? Now, I'll be honest with you. I told you this story a while back, I think, but I'll tell it again, part of it anyway. Um, But I've just been convicted at how infrequently I pray specifically for people in my life to share the gospel with. And I'm blown away at how infrequently I do that. And recently I was um, at the gym one day and I decided, you know, I'm going to pray that um, I can share the gospel with someone today just that God would give me that chance. And I'm leaving the gym at this point and, and nothing miraculous happened. And so I'm leaving the gym at this point and, and my next door neighbor, who I talk with a lot, but I haven't talked about the gospel at this point yet, he walks up, we start talking, and for some reason, just that one day, the guy just started opening up to me in the parking lot at the gym. And we had this like hour-long conversation about Jesus and the gospel, and he was saying things like, I want to start coming to your church, and I'm going, this is pretty cool, like how God answers prayer like this. And so um, I was just blown away with that conversation. And here's the funny thing. This guy started coming to our church at the 815 service with me. He'll sit with me in the main service at the 815 service. His wife's not a believer. I think he's kind of on his way to becoming one. Um, this guy is pursuing us even more than I'm pursuing him probably, and I'm humbled by that. And he still, here's the funny thing. He still tells me, he goes, you know, it all comes back to that conversation we had at the gym that one day. And I'm going, that was like the one day I prayed that God would like maybe open the gospel door somehow and, 
and it just kind of miraculously happened to my next-door neighbor at the gym. And so God has this way of actually answering the prayer when you say, God, give me an open gospel door. And God has a way of, of miraculously meeting that. So who is someone in your life that you've stopped praying for? Who's someone in your life that you have just thought, you know, God's not going to save them. They're just, they're too far gone. That person has no desire whatsoever to follow Jesus. Who is someone in your life that's like that, that you've stopped praying for today? And also, do you pray just for different circumstances, or do you pray for a chance to share the gospel in your circumstances? Look at verse 5. He says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And I love this passage because it tells us that we cannot have a one-size-fits-all presentation of the gospel. Okay, Impact Team, you ready for this? Because I know we do that for little kids, and that's fine for little kids. It works for little kids, but the older you get, the more nuanced and personal your invitation has to be for someone to, for them to become a Christian, right? I'm not saying it's all on you. I'm saying the Holy Spirit works through us, but I think we've got to use the Holy Spirit as well for wisdom and discernment and how we share that gospel with people as you move into high school and move into college because each person has a face. Each person has a story. And if you just give like this little prepackaged gospel presentation to like a college student, they'll look at you and go, okay, I don't care. That doesn't work for me. I don't care about the five points of the, the, the uh, five points of Calvinism. I don't care about the four spiritual laws. I mean, who cares? Like, I don't believe that. And so it requires, he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Everyone's got a different story, different background. You've got to get to know them before you just unload your bullet points of the gospel on people. You can't do that when you get into those later years because people have a story, they have a face, and it's got to be more nuanced than that. You've got to use great wisdom in how you talk to unbelievers because some people in the church think that being bold means being a jerk, right? They think that I'll be bold about Christianity, I'm going to be a jerk to this guy because, and then when he gets mad at me, I'll just call it persecution. No, you're just being a jerk, and you deserve whatever he said to you, right? And so you've got to be bold and courageous, but at the same time, you've got to be wise and discerning and understand that God's going to use you in some very specific ways in how you answer each person. And I think this verse is, is never more true than it is today because especially in our culture as we deal with things like homosexuality, these very complex issues that the church has to deal with, and some of the pat answers that previous generations gave for those issues are not the things that are going to reach our culture, okay? And please hear me today. I am firmly implanted in the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ, where I, I still call certain things sin, and I still say this is sinful. But the way that we communicate those things and the, and the tone that we have and the words that we use We've got to be discerning and wise and winsome and persuasive and loving and compassionate and all those things so that these people we're talking to are reminded that they have a face, they've got a story, and we've got to listen, we've got to love and be compassionate 
but at the same time still stick to truth. That has to be the kind of people that we are. These kinds of issues require great wisdom and discernment. And my hope is that you'll be a Christian who does not compromise truth, but that you'll be flexible in how you present that truth. Not flexible to where you bend the truth, but where you, the ways in which you say it, the ways in which you talk about it, are different based on the person you're talking to. And so if you took a survey on the street about one word that comes to mind when people hear the word Christian, I would guess you'd get words like angry, abusive, you get words like oppressive, you get words like um, judgmental, hypocritical, and Paul says here there's one word that should bleed down over your life, and it's this word grace, gracious. And so the question for us is, is this what an unbeliever would accuse you of being? Would an unbeliever accuse you of being gracious? Man, like, you're, you're just so gracious. Like, where'd you get this from? Where's this? I don't see this out there in the world. Like, where do you get this thing? What is this? Grace? Are you someone that is, is seasoned with salt and someone who has gracious speech? You know, I love the end of this passage because um, I think how you answer each person is so important. And I think some people make the mistake of thinking that the church is like this big factory that just churns out disciples, like, you know, shiny new Jesus followers, and we just sort of churn them out with our amazing programs, and we forget that the church is supposed to be a conglomeration of, of, of disciples that are being made disciples while they're also making other disciples as well. There's a quote that I loved in the book, You Lost Me, and here's what he says. He says, we're at a critical point in the life of the North American church The Christian community must rethink our efforts to make disciples. Many of the assumptions on which we have built our work with young people are rooted in modern mechanistic and mass production paradigms. Some, though not all, ministries have taken cues from the assembly line, doing everything possible to streamline the manufacturer, shining new Jesus followers, fresh from the factory floor. But disciples cannot be mass produced. Disciples are handmade, one relationship at a time. And here's the deal. I was joking with some students a while back. Um, I started noticing all over the place. If you, if you look for this, you'll see it. But all over, like, menus and restaurants, um, you'll see the word handmade a lot. Okay, just keep in mind this, this idea. You'll see it everywhere now that I've said this to you. But I've, I've seen on menus, like, we have hand-dipped ice cream. We've got handmade this, handmade that. I started thinking, like, why do they keep using this word handmade? Like, what's the big deal with handmade? And I started thinking about this. You will never see a store or company advertise this. Fresh from the factory floor, right? Or factory made, right? They don't ever do that because that seems impersonal. And we don't really like that kind of marketing, do we? But we like the whole idea of someone took their hands and they made this item just for me. And I'm going to buy it and pay extra because it's handmade, right? I've even seen this, like, I was at BJ's uh, restaurant a while back, and they have, like, they call it handcrafted beer. Like, what does that mean? Are there, like, little elves back there making beer in the back part of the restaurant? Like, what does this mean exactly? But everyone uses the word because people like the idea of someone hand-making something for them. And what I want you to understand here is this, is that the point of discipleship is not that we just churn out disciples like a factory, right? And our programs just somehow just sort of, you know, push them out like an assembly line. 
And that's the way it works. That's not the way it works. Paul knows here that every person has a face, every person has a story, every disciple, in a sense, needs to be like handmade. And the marks, our lives should be marked by other people in our lives, right? Like we should have the influence of other people in our life as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And this is the way discipleship happens. And my hope for you, listen, look at me. My hope for you is that you will always be committed to the body of Christ and always be someone who wants to be involved in that disciple-making process. As messy as it is, as chaotic as it is, that you'd be someone who wants to get your hands dirty. You want to get your hands dirty for the gospel and be willing to participate in the church in this process of disciple-making. That's my hope and prayer for you. Go ahead and close out with your discussion at the end of your discussion. The group's here.